stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We will turn in, uh, to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, and uh, we started Jesus issuing seven woes last week. We got through the first four. We're going to finish the last three this morning. And so I'm going to reread all seven woes just to keep the broader context a little bit. So we're going to read from Matthew 23, 13 through verse 36. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift of the altar, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have, neglect, have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that outside also may become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape from being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of whom you will, kill, you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, each passage has a tone. When you read through the scriptures, you, you come across passage by passage, and you have to understand that when that passage was spoken to the original audience, there was a tone to it. Now, we don't have audio recordings. We can't know definitively what the tone is, and yet we can see textual clues for what the tone of a passage is. And here, I've tried to reproduce what I think Jesus' tone of this whole passage was, and it is fierce. 
But one of the things we introduced last week as Jesus has begun speaking these woes, these woes to religious play actors, one of the ideas we introduced is that this is Jesus loving his enemies. Remember what he said in Matthew 22, what are the two greatest commandments? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we said there that, the, biblically speaking, uh, we understand that there's no restriction on your neighbor. Yes, of course, there are neighbors who are near you and far away from you, but there's no restriction in the sense that, oh, I get to love this person, but not that person. I get to love my friends, but not my enemies. Jesus has been very clear, even from the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And Jesus is loving all the time. How does he manifest his love here to his enemies, the scribes and Pharisees? He manifests his love by pronouncing woe. And just to remind you, what is woe? Woe is an emotional pronouncement of disaster, divine disaster, that God is going to bring judgment upon you. And sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, the woe is more in the tone of uh, a, a pity, and Jesus will say that um, to those who are more um, experiencing God's judgment, but not, not in a direct sort of way, an indirect sort of way. But in this case, the woe is a pronouncement of judgment from the judge. Remember that Matthew is presented that Jesus is the ultimate judge. He is the one who will execute the Father's judgment on earth. And so this isn't just the pronouncement by a prophet. This is the pronouncement by the judge of woe, a declaration of God's judgment against the scribes and the Pharisees. Disaster is about to come upon them. And you might think, well, how in the world is that loving? That's just fierce. It sounds angry. It doesn't make me feel good. And what we said is, is that here are the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus doesn't have much hope for these guys. Even as we read through those woes, we understand that there's not much hope, if any. And yet, and yet, if there is any hope, how is it to come? That someone who's deaf and blind, a religious play actor, who is hardened to the truth, how do you reach that person? Through the sharp needle of the truth of judgment piercing the hard callous of one's heart to hopefully strike at the heart. So this is indeed Jesus loving, warning, warning the scribes and Pharisees and warning the crowds and the disciples who are standing by so that they don't go down the same path as the scribes and Pharisees. So this all reminds us of the big idea of these seven woes. It's the same big idea last week and this week. We got through four woes last week. We'll get through the last three this morning. And the big idea is this. Be warned about Jesus' severe judgment if you are a blind religious play actor. Be warned about Jesus' severe judgment if you are a blind religious play actor. Let me just remind you of the first four woes from last week. First, in verse 13, Jesus effectively says, severe judgment awaits you if you block the way into the kingdom. If you don't receive the word of the gospel and then you block the way, God's judgment, Jesus' judgment, severe judgment is upon you. And not only that, but woe too, severe judgment awaits you if you convert people to hellish religion. See, there's a progression in the woes. They interrelate to one another. The first is just you're blocking someone from the way to the kingdom. The second is not only do you do that, you capture people to a hellish religion that's all about externals without any issue of the heart, and you make people 
If the scribes and Pharisees were making people twice as much sons of hell as themselves, God's woe, Jesus' woe, severe judgment awaits you if you convert people to hellish religion. But what does that teaching look like? What is this hellish teaching that the scribes and Pharisees were issuing? Well, Jesus kind of develops that in the third and fourth woes. Third woe, severe judgment awaits you if you teach that the earthly rather than heavenly accountability is greater. Jesus talks about oaths. And what we saw in the oaths is the scribes and Pharisees were more interested in human accountability than they were vertical accountability to God. They were trying to get out of their word. And Jesus, that's an illustration of the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus says that severe judgment awaits you if you teach that earthly rather than heavenly, heavenly accountability is greater. And then finally, last week, we saw this. Severe judgment awaits you if you skew the values of God's commands. Jesus says, you scribes and Pharisees, you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, which you ought to have done, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So they're teaching not only not only is teaching um, earthly accountability rather than heavenly is greater, it's also teaching that it's skewing the commands of God. And so that sort of teaching captures people for hell. That's the first four of the seven woes. And so we continue this morning with these woes. And again, this is warning. It's warning to the scribes and Pharisees. It's warning to the disciples and the crowds. What is woe five? Woe five is this in verses 25 through 26. Severe judgment awaits you if you cleanse the outside but not the inside. Severe judgment awaits you if you cleanse the outside but not the inside. Look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So here's Jesus pronouncing, divine disaster from me ultimately is coming upon you, scribes and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. What does that mean? We said this word really means play actor. Uh, the idea of an actor is they are portraying a reality externally that is not ultimately true. And that is the idea of the scribes and Pharisees. They are portraying a reality about themselves that is not ultimately true about who they are. But in each of these woes, as we saw last week, Jesus gives a reason. Why is he pronouncing this woe of judgment? Well, here Jesus gives it. For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Now, what Jesus is alluding to here is the reality that the scribes and the Pharisees uh, they would try to avoid uncleanness. Now, by uncleanness, it's not just like you were playing with mud pies and came in and need to wash your hands. No, the idea of uncleanness in that context is, and it stems from an Old Testament idea, that in order to approach God, in order to draw near to his presence in the temple, you need to be clean. You need to be clean in the way that God pronounces that. And so we look back at the Old Testament, we look back at places like Leviticus, and it gives all these ways you can become unclean in a fallen world. And so the Pharisees and scribes, you know, they would try to figure out, okay, what are, what's making you unclean or not? And so in this case, they were fastidious about washing plates and cups. Because maybe, you know, maybe the gnat, remember the gnat in the last woe? Maybe the gnat falls into your cup or maybe it's on the outside, and it causes the cup to be unclean. So we're going to wash our plates. We're going to wash our dishes. And what Jesus is here saying is, like, you wash the outside, but not the inside. Now, that would have been odd for them to hear, because it was, from what we can discern from extra-biblical resources, the Pharisees very much cleaned the inside of the cup. 
They understood that, okay, maybe you clean the outside, but you know, if the inside's dirty, the inside is dirty, the whole thing's dirty. They would have understood that. So in a sense, Jesus is pronouncing something that stands opposite what they actually do. Now, it's surprising, and it's intentionally surprising, because what we understand that Jesus is doing here is he's talking about a practice they have externally, but he's using it as a metaphor for their whole lives, because he says this, but inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You can't have greed and self-indulgence. You can't have robbery and self-indulgence in a literal plate. So what is he talking about? He's talking about them, their lives. He's talking about you guys clean the outside. You polish the outside. You make yourselves look good on the outside. You're working at getting your behaviors in line on the outside. But what's going on inside? What's going on in your thoughts? Your thoughts, even though the exterior looks good, the exterior behavior looks good, your thoughts are full of greed. Your thoughts are full of, literally the idea is robbery. Your thoughts are full of robbery. How can I take advantage of this person? How can I get more for myself from this person? And self-indulgence, right? He, he condemns them earlier, or at least the idea, it seems like um, from Matthew 5, people can lust in their heart. They can be rampant in lust, even though they're not physically committing adultery, there's that thought of self-indulgence in their hearts. How can I indulge? That's the idea. And so what does Jesus tell them to do? You guys are cleaning the exterior. You're doing uh, the right external behaviors, but inside is filth. Your inside is what's making you unclean before a holy God. You can't draw near God because of your interior is unclean. Verse 26, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may become clean. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, if you want to draw near to a holy God, if you want to draw near to God's presence, you've got to deal with what really makes you unclean, the interior first. Turn back to Matthew 15, just to see a similar idea that Jesus already brought up before. Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20. A very similar context, slightly different. Uh, the, he's arguing with the scribes and Pharisees about washing. So very similar, a little bit different. But he states this principle in verses 18 through 20. Listen to this. But what it comes out of a person, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These, these thoughts are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is using the same principle that he's talking about in Matthew 23. What defiles you before God? It's not ultimately your external actions, although that's part of it. Ultimately, it's your thoughts that are in your heart. You do what you do because you want what you want. Where does the wanting happen? The wanting happens in the heart. The heart is what defiles you before God. And so Jesus is saying, you're doing all this stuff on the externals to look good, but internally you're a mess and you're unclean before a holy God. So what you need to do is not work outside in, or just outside, let and ignore the in. You need to work inside out. This is always how it works in God's plan and purposes for salvation. 
He wants a clean heart, not merely a clean external actions. Oh, yes, the external actions have their place. Jesus doesn't say, stop doing, stop worrying about external actions. He didn't say that. He just says, deal with what's inside first so that the outside may become clean also. Now, he just commands the scribes and Pharisees, do it. Cleanse yourself. But he doesn't, the next logical question would be, well, how? How are the scribes and Pharisees to cleanse themselves? He doesn't answer that question here, but we do have the answer from the rest of Matthew. And the message from John the Baptist and Jesus is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Remember John's message. He calls for repentance. What is repentance? We've said this all along. Repentance is an allegiance change. It's a change in allegiance from sin and self, which is where we start, to an allegiance to the Father and ultimately through his Son, through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ. And John's proclaiming this. Repentance and faith are two flip sides of the same coin. Repentance is the turn of allegiance, but placing allegiance into Jesus, that's faith. And then that faith, that if it's true faith, is not just going to, uh, you know, it's not just the sense that you're going to have a righteous standing before a holy God. That is true. But it's also the fact that the Messiah is going to baptize you with the Spirit. That's what John the Baptist talks about. Such that you are going to be cleansed, washed, hence the imagery of baptism, such that you live a righteous life. A righteous life that looks a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, kingdom righteousness. True repentance and faith gives you a righteous standing in God's eyes, but then the Spirit of God um, from the Messiah, from the Christ, from the Son, comes and indwells a true disciple and cleanses from inside out. And so even though Jesus doesn't answer it here or give the means, the means have been clear all along in Matthew. Repentance and faith. What do we learn from this? Those who focus on cleansing the external while ignoring their internal filthy heart have Jesus' severe judgment upon them. Is your life just a show while your internal desires run amok with sinful thoughts? Thoughts are what defile you before a holy God. Now, I may not know that. We talked about this last week, right? You may be a religious play actor. You may be here, and you may look really good on the external. You may be, your behaviors, you've got all your ducks in a row as far as your external behaviors, but your your neighbor may not know you. Your family and friends may not know you. We may not know you. You may not know yourself. You may be self-deceived, but Jesus knows. God knows. Maybe you do know. Maybe you do know. It's like, well, I've got, I'm fighting for those external behaviors. I'm fighting to have an externally good-looking life. And yeah, the internal will take care of itself later. If that's how you think, you are spiritually dead. And Jesus' woe is upon you. Because your internal thoughts are what defile you before God. Is your fight against sin merely about the external actions while ignoring what your heart is producing that? Uh, I've been trying to, my, my lawn is not in great shape right now. I get a lot of weeds. Like each week, there's a ton of weeds. 
And I go out there and I pick and I pull weeds, but I understand if I just, you know, kind of clip off the flower or the leaf, I'm not going to ultimately do anything. I need to dig at the root. That's how sin works. Your exterior behaviors, you can't just deal with those and ignore the root because it's just going to pop up right again. We do what we do because we want what we want. You've got to deal with the heart. But we can slip into, even as Christians, into a mindset. It's like, well, I just need to take care of the external behavior. I just need to stop clicking on porn on the internet. I just need to stop slandering my wife or child or whatever. That's an external behavior. And yes, you should stop doing those things. But if you just say, all right, I just need to stop it. I just need to stop it. I just need to be better. You may be spiritually dead. Because ultimately, it's not outside in, it's inside out. You need to dig deeper. Where are those desires coming from? And sometimes that's a deep and winding road to understand your own desires and to have the Spirit of God expose those and to deal with them. But that is what Jesus is talking about. Here's another question. Do you want to kill sin in your life because it makes you look good to your, it looks bad to yourself or maybe to others? Is that why you want to kill sin, right? You, you want to kill sin so that I think I have a better self-image, right? Like, ah, I just really don't like myself when I do these sorts of things. You may be spiritually dead. Because ultimately what's to grieve us about our sin is how it stands against our Holy Father, Sin is just not doing a naughty thing. It is an affront to God. It is an offense. It is a slap in the face to the infinitely worthy God of the universe. You are a rebel. And so if you want to kill sin just because of your own self-image, we call that idolatry. Is fighting sin just about not doing something, or is it about pursuing righteousness and ultimately pursuing and loving God? See, sometimes we just fall into that trap. I just need to stop it. I just need to stop it. And I, need to, I just need to do better. But ultimately, what does God want? God wants us to love him with all of our being. And not just to stop doing what's unrighteous, but to start doing what is righteous because we love him from the inside out. This area is where we in this room are going to be most tempted in this church. We are going to be most tempted to do the right things externally while ignoring what's going on internal. That's always going to be the struggle for even a sound and healthy church. Because we just slip into thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to church. I got baptized. I'm a member. I, you know, I say my prayers. I read my Bible. And yeah, I know I've got some wrong desires in my heart, but you know, I'm doing pretty good on the external and you are headed on the road to not only defeat, because after a while, if you've experienced this, it gets exhausting to try to cleanse yourself exteriorly with your behaviors. And then you just keep doing it and doing it in your own strength. And it just becomes exhausting until a point where you just, you just give up and go headlong into sin because you weren't dealing with the internal. Jesus wants to deal with the internal through the Holy Spirit. This isn't just an internal, this isn't just an individual thing either. It's a corporate thing. You know, we can be as a church, we can have what looks good on the exterior. We can have the right external forms. We can have good music. We can have good preaching. We can have good doctrine. 
But if it's not driven by a true heart of love, we'll die as a church. You see that in Revelation 2-3. through There's a dead church. They're doing maybe some right external forms still, but there's no life there's, because there's no love. No love for God and love another. That's my greatest fear as we've been focusing on things like meaningful membership, baptism, Lord's Supper, ordinances. Those are important. The external is important, but if it doesn't come from a heart of love, which it should and ought to and is connected to that, then Jesus will pronounce woe upon us. It's not just an individual thing. It's a church thing. Severe judgment awaits you if you cleanse the outside but not the inside. But then Jesus goes further. Woe 6, verses 27 through 28. Severe judgment awaits you if you appear righteous but are full of lawlessness. Now, you might hear that and think, well, that sounds an awfully similar to the one we just looked at. Well, there's a slight difference, and we'll talk about it as we go. Severe judgment awaits you if you appear righteous but are full of lawlessness. Look at verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, play actors. Why? For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, what's the deal with the whitewashed tombs? Well, it's related to what we just talked about, actually. Remember I talked about how uncleanness, like ritual uncleanness, means you can't come into the temple, you can't draw near to God's presence. And if you look in Leviticus and Old Testament laws, there's all sorts of things and ways by which you can be unclean. The common denominator in uncleanness is how close to death are you? How close to death? If God, if, if the Holy of Holies in the temple is the beating, is the most life you could experience on earth, because God's life is there, or at least a manifestation of his presence is there in a concentrated way, if that's where the greatest life is you could experience on earth, then as you move farther and farther away, as you become unclean, you are closer to death. And how close to death can you get on earth? Tombs, where dead people's bones are rotting. And so what they would do, what they would do is they would take some whitewash and they would kind of mark out the tombs so that you could avoid them, right? Oh, don't go over there because uh, if you go over there, you, you contract uncleanness, really bad uncleanness so that you can't draw near to God's presence. But notice what Jesus does. He draws a comparison. He says, you know, you whitewash one of these tombs and it may look very beautiful, right? If you paint it all nice and white, it looks clean. It looks nice. And maybe you might even be attracted to it. Like, hey, what's that white thing over there? Let me go see what that is. That looks really nice. And then what ends up happening? You contract uncleanness unwittingly because the exterior looks beautiful, but actually what's inside are dead people's bones. Uh, we talked about Jewish burial. What they would do is they would lay a body in a tomb for like a year until it decomposed. And then they would take the bones and they would put them in a little box called an ossuary. Uh, and so dead people's bones is dead people's bones. That's what these tombs are full with. Full of death, contracting the worst sort of uncleanness. But notice the comparison that Jesus draws verse 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. That's their beauty, right? He's drawing a link between the beauty of the exterior on this tomb and exterior righteousness. It looks good. 
And that is very true with the scribes and Pharisees. They were perceived as very pious, very beautiful in their righteousness, very, very uh, committed. People flocked to them. They heard their teaching. They were attracted to them because of their beauty. But what does Jesus say? But within, just like that tomb, you're full of play acting and lawlessness. Back to the thoughts again. You guys have a good look on the outside, but on the inside, it's full of false thoughts, play acting. You're putting on a show for others and all sorts of lawlessness, all those rampant wicked thoughts, murder, adultery, all sorts. Now, again, this sounds very similar to what we just were. There's the inside-outside contrast again. What's different between the last woe and this woe? Well, the last woe was all about cleansing themselves. There was no one else in the picture. It was just about, you think about an individual scribe and Pharisee, they're worried about cleansing themselves. Here, in this woe, it's not just that they're spiritually dead on the inside, it's that their spiritual death harms others. That others see these righteous people, they look really good, and they are attracted to them, they're attracted to their teaching, and just like approaching a whitewashed tomb, they contract the worst sort of uncleanness. That's why Jesus says in Woe 2, you make them twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Here's the reality. Those who look righteous on the outside to others, see, we brought in the others aspect in this woe. Those who look righteous on the outside to others while masking internal sin have Jesus' severe judgment upon them. Not just because you're play acting and you are under God's wrath because of your own spiritual death, but it's because you transmit that spiritual death to others. Did you understand that? That if you're, you're a religious play actor, if you're doing all the right external things, you might look really good and maybe you earn some following. Maybe people look up to you, but you know, and God knows internally you're dead. It's not just about you being dead. It's that you pass that death on to others. That is the danger of hypocrisy, of play acting. And we can think of evangelical leaders who have done this very thing. Big names in the last few years, unfortunately. Let's think of Ravi Zacharias, right? Guy that we looked up to for years and decades, had a seemingly fruitful ministry. And I'm not denying that God used that at all. But then he dies and what comes out? Full of filth, sexual immorality. I don't know his state, only God does. And yet we see the same reality at play, that people are attracted to this big name leader and yet he had internal spiritual death. How many people were contracted spiritual death through that? How many people, after seeing him fall, walked away from the faith? Same thing with Mark Driscoll, Mars Hill. Big name evangelical leader, was looked up to for many years. And his own sin caused the fall of that church, and people walked away from the faith because there's a good external show and again, I don't know Mark's heart, and I hope he knows the Lord. I hope he believes the gospel that he preaches. And yet there's concern, and the concern is the play acting, what's going on internally, infects others. 
closer to home, Artaxerdia. Again, I pray that he knows the Lord, that he's trusting in the gospel he preaches, but then there's internal uncleanness that infects others. Trinity Church in Portland is still trying to recover from that downfall. Let's make it closer to home yet, literally our homes. Families with play-acting parents. You see, you may have a good show. You may come to church. You may um, sing the songs. And yet, maybe you go home and maybe there's bickering, there's fighting. uh, Maybe there's all sorts of immorality at home. And what's going to happen is that the kids are going to see, oh, there's an external show, but there's actually nothing really to this. It's all about the external show. And the kids are going to walk away from the faith. That's what's going to happen. Because you as a parent are transmitting spiritual death. Because not only are you dead, and you have this external shell and show that you like to present to others and to your family, but kids are smart. They pick up on the reality. And when they grow up, your God's not real. Your God's not real because you're just doing all of this external stuff in your own strength, and I don't want any part of it. I don't want any part of this play acting and hypocrisy. And so they leave. And Jesus' severe judgment and woe is upon you if that happens. Now, in all of this, I remind you that there's not, it's not lost hope, right? What is the call? The call is always repentance and faith. If you find yourself in this position of being a religious play, play actor, what do you do? You repent and you place your faith in Jesus who is able to cleanse you from your sin, even your religious play acting. But if you persist and go on, Jesus' woe is upon you. Jesus' severe judgment. So we've seen Jesus' severe judgment awaits you if you cleanse the outside but not the inside. Jesus' severe judgment awaits you if you appear righteous but are full of lawlessness. And finally, the culminating seventh woe. Severe judgment awaits you if you murder Jesus' messengers. Severe judgment awaits you if you murder Jesus' messengers. Look at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, play actors. Why? For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. You see what Jesus just did? He, he was just talking about tombs, and now he kind of uses that imagery, and he bounces onto another woe. And so what is he talking about? He's talking about the scribes and Pharisees building uh, tombs and monuments for uh, righteous people and prophets of old. So Old Testament prophets, that sort of a thing. And so they're beautifying these, temple, uh, these uh, tombs, these monuments. But it's not just about them doing that. Notice how Jesus develops this, verse 30, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And so what are they saying? They're saying, uh, we recognize that our forebears killed God's true prophets. And now we're decorating their tombs and, oh, we would never have done this. We would never have done such a heinous thing. Okay, so what? Well, how does Jesus develop that? 31. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So he's just saying, by what you have just said, as you're decorating these tombs, you're acknowledging that you're descendants of murderers of the prophets, true messengers for God. And notice what Jesus does to this. Here's where he brings the punch. Verse 32. Fill up then the measure of your father's. 
Formally, that's a command, right? He's commanding the scribes and Pharisees to fill up the measure of the fathers. What does that mean? He's formally commanding, go ahead, do what your fathers did, murder the prophets. Now, obviously, Jesus doesn't want them to murder the prophets. It's a rhetorical punch, right? He's saying, you guys think, you guys think that you wouldn't be like your parents, but like father, like son. Go ahead, fill up the measure of your prophets. And they were in process of doing that very thing. Because as early as Matthew 12, 14, it says the Pharisees are conspiring how to destroy Jesus, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate messenger of God. They're conspiring to kill him. They're blind to that fact. And then Jesus kind of effectively takes an aside here in verse 33. Look what he says. You serpents, you brood of vipers. Now, why does he call them that? Now, John the Baptist said the very same thing at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 3. Uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees come to him, and he says, you, you brood of vipers. Why does John and Jesus call them that? Well, if you rewind to Genesis 3, there's an ultimate serpent. His name is Satan, and he is the one who got our first father and mother to fall into sin. And basically the way Genesis paints the picture is from then on out, there's two camps and only two camps of people in the world. There are those who are aligned with the serpent, the offspring of the serpent. And there are those who are aligned with God, the offspring of the woman. Two and only two camps. And Jesus is saying here, and John is saying here, you guys are aligned with the serpent. You guys are aligned with Satan, the murderer. And what does he do with that? He not only says that, you're aligned with Satan. He says this, how can you flee? How can you flee from the judgment of Gehenna? That's literally how it reads. How can you possibly flee from the judgment of hell? It's a primarily a rhetorical question, meaning what? You can't. What do snakes do when you have a fire lit? They start slithering away, right? Well, we're getting out of here. You actually see this in Acts uh, in an episode with, uh, with Paul after he gets off the boat. They light a fire and a viper gets out, right? Because they're fleeing from the wrath. What is Jesus portraying here? You guys are a bunch of snakes and you're trying to flee away from God's judgment. How can you? And the answer is you can't. You can't. You can try to slither away as much as possible, but God's judgment will overtake you. God's fiery judgment, the fires of hell will overtake you. Now, Jesus returns. Remember, he said, fill up the measure of your fathers. You, you are sons of the murderers of the prophets. You better fill that measure up. But he hasn't explained how. Well, now he does that in verse 34. Therefore, because you're aligned with the serpent, because you are descendants of the murderers of the prophets, because you're going to fill up the measure of your fathers, therefore, I send you prophets and I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm sending you some of my disciples. And you're going to kill them. You're going to persecute them. And you're going to fill up the measure of your fathers. Like father, like son. 
but to what end? Now, if you just take a step back, if you read the rest of Acts and say the rest of the New Testament, this happens. So let's just take Paul as an example. Paul goes around, he preaches the gospel, the church starts, and then who comes in behind? A bunch of Jews who say, well, you need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law of Moses. And they undermine this. And then there's the persecution from the Jews against Paul. Remember, in the temple when they seize Paul, right, it's a bunch of Jews who are seizing Paul, unbelieving Jews. They're going to try to kill him. That's the pattern, and it fulfills what Jesus said here. But to what end? To what end? Verse 35. So that. So I'm sending you. uh, You're going to fill up the measure of your fathers. I'm sending you, my disciples, to do this. To what end? So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. What is Jesus saying? This, this language of may someone's blood come upon you, that's an, that's an Old Testament language for saying you're guilty and judgment is coming. You're guilty and judgment is coming. And Jesus even gives us some temporal markers here. He starts with Abel, the first murder. Cain murders Abel. And what happens? God says, uh, the blood of your brothers crying to me from the ground. So you've got Abel as a starting point. Uh, what's difficult is the ending point. He talks about a Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. There's multiple options for this. I'm going to run through them quickly. If you want to talk about them more uh, later, we can. One option is a Zechariah named in 2 Chronicles 24, 20 through 21, who was stoned in the temple. Problem was, he's the son of Jehoiada, not Berechiah. So that doesn't work. It could be Zechariah 1, 1, where uh, the prophet is named Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Problem is, we have no record of Zechariah being killed in the temple. Even more, who killed this Zechariah, son of Berechiah? The scribes and Pharisees, whom you killed between the altar and the temple. So my argument is, this is some Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who was a contemporary of Jesus and the, the, the prophets. And that makes sense, right? He's starting with Abel all the way up to that point in time. And he's saying all of that righteous blood, that guilt, and that judgment is coming upon you. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, how is that just? Right? Because um, the scribes and Pharisees didn't murder. They didn't murder Abel. Well, this brings up an, uh, a pattern that we see in the Old Testament. Turn uh, brief. Well, I'll just summarize it for you. In Genesis 15, 16, way back, God is talking to Abram. And he's telling him about the Exodus. He's saying, your, 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 your offspring are going to be mistreated. And they're ultimately, after about 400 years, they're going to be brought up to this land. Uh, but we have to wait because the, wicked, the uh, wickedness, the iniquity, the transgression of the Amorites is not yet complete. And the idea is it's not just individual guilt. It's guilt as a people and a nation. And what, the way God looks at it is there's an accumulation there's an accumulation to a point where he will execute judgment, temporal judgment. And what, what Jesus is saying is, all that blood, my disciples, that you're going to shed, it's going to come upon you. The guilt, the judgment, it's going to be visited upon you. And he reinforces that in verse 36. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus and John, Jesus has characterized that generation of, of Israel as wicked and adulterous. 
It's not just the scribes and Pharisees. Yes, they are the leaders. They are the shepherds of Israel, and they're going to experience that judgment, but it's the whole group who ignored, by and large, not, not totally, but by and large, John and Jesus' message. And this blood is coming upon them. And you're like, well, how? How does that happen? About 40 years later, the Romans come in, they slaughter Jews, they crush the nation, they destroy the temple. And yes, it was Roman armies, but ultimately the one behind that was God the Father, executing judgment upon a wicked and adulterous generation who murdered his true messengers, Jesus and John and his disciples. Because by that time, a lot of what happens in Acts has already taken, or all of what happens in Acts has taken place. What do we do with this? Those who murder Jesus' messengers, his disciples, those who shed innocent blood have Jesus' severe judgment upon them. And we live in a, a bubble, or at least we have, in America, but you need to understand that Christians get slaughtered across the globe every day of the week. In Muslim countries, they get slaughtered, hunted down, and killed, especially if they've been baptized, because they've been marked publicly, going public with their faith. And they are killed. In China, oh yeah, there's the state-sponsored communist churches, but you've heard and seen where true churches, the underground churches, the government seeks to crush them and kill Christians. North Korea. And here's the news. God, Jesus, will visit this blood. And that is good news. Turn briefly, we, this, this principle holds true. We see it in Revelation. Turn to Revelation 6. Now, what Revelation 6 talks about is a future happening, but it's the same principle. And this is what happens in Revelation 6. There's this whole judgment that's being unfolded on the world, but part of this is martyrdom, persecution. Revelation 6, 9. Listen to this. When he opened the sixth seal, I saw under the altar in heaven the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, true messengers. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Do you see that? It's the same principle, that there is a measure where God's patience will wait and wait, even as his true messengers are being killed, until it reaches a point where he will visit that judgment on a people. But it's not just the nations out there. It is America. America has shed rivers of innocent blood. Don't be deceived. Let's just pick the easiest one. Let's pick abortion. America has shed rivers of innocent blood through the killing of the unborn. From 1990 to 2020, just 30 years, between 27,767,901 and 36,713,341 abortions have happened. Innocent life snuffed out. 
Compare that to six million Jews during the Holocaust. Or maybe think about, let's not, that's the easiest one to pick on. Let's pick on uh, transgender surgeries for children who don't know what they're doing. They're confused. Mutilation. It's a bloody affair. We just don't think about it. It's clinical. It's set off there. Friends, Jesus' woe is upon our country. I'm not waiting for America to be saved. We don't, I mean, I don't believe, (laughs) we are not in the business of making America great again. Jesus' woe is upon our country. I am waiting for America to be judged by a just and holy God. And it is already happening. Why do you think there's all this cultural confusion and devastation happening? Why do you think it's accelerating? Because that's God's judgment upon us uh, for shedding innocent blood amongst other atrocities. As disciples of Jesus, our citizenship is the future kingdom of heaven. Our loyalty is to Jesus and to fellow Christians before the United States of America. Our loyalty is to the church and to its local expression ahead of our nation. Our goal as Christians is not to save America. Now, it's nice. I'm not saying, oh, just bury your head in the sand and do nothing. I'm saying, yeah, be a good citizen, engage engage, uh, use your political processes that you can, but I'm not hopeful that that's saving anything. Maybe it preserves it for a time. And it's nice if we can help preserve our culture and nation, but it is not our first priority. Our goal as Christians is to proclaim repentance and faith through Jesus to Americans, not America, Americans, so they might flee from God's final judgment and wrath. Oh, God's going to visit a temporal judgment on this nation, but that has nothing compared to the fires of God's eternal judgment in hell. And that is our job, not to save the culture, but to save, but to proclaim, just to faithfully proclaim the message and know that judgment is coming and live like judgment is coming. Here's another question for you. Are you listening to Jesus' messengers? Who are the messengers? Any disciple who shares the gospel with you, any disciple who proclaims the truth to you, your pastor, your pastors and elders, your deacons, any Christian who is proclaiming the true gospel, are you listening? Now, you might say, well, no, I'm not. I mean, you may, you're not going to tell me that, right? But, but you, you may not be listening. You're like, yeah, yeah, I'm just sitting, and I hear this week in and week out, but I, I'm not going to listen. In fact, I hate hearing this stuff, but I endure it. And you may not think that you would ever murder one of God's messengers. You may say with the scribes and Pharisees, oh, I've never murdered anyone. But here's the thing. If you don't like what Jesus says, if you're unwilling to submit or are murdering in your heart, given the opportunity when your kingdom, when you set yourself on the throne and you're unwilling to be toppled and submit to King Jesus, you will murder literally Jesus' messengers. That's what happens when self is on the throne. Because if you are the king of your kingdom and you don't want that kingdom threatened, you will do anything to protect yourself. Now remember, seven woes against scribes and Pharisees. This is Jesus loving his enemies. He is shaking them by the shoulders. He's stabbing a sharp needle through their hard callus of their hearts to try to wake them up. 
It's the most loving thing he could do with this particular people. Jesus loves religious play actors. Even these guys, he's warning them. You know, he asks a question, how can you flee from the judgment of hell? And it's a rhetorical question. He's essentially saying you can't, but there's actually a true answer to that question. How can you flee from the judgment of hell? Repentance, turning allegiance from sin and self, laying down arms, surrendering such that Jesus is your Lord and King, having your allegiance totally and only for him, trusting in his work alone on his death on the cross as a substitution for your sin and him, as a, him living the righteous life that you and I couldn't live in your place. That's how you flee from the judgment of hell. Repentance and faith going public in the waters of baptism and then having Jesus change your whole life And that's the thing. We all in this room, we all have a bent towards religious play acting. We all do. We all start there because we all want to give a good show to the world while hiding what's really going on inside. And even after we're Christians, there are still things that we do to try to cloak and hide and guard sin in our heart. What's the answer? The answer is exactly the same. Spirit of God, please expose these areas in my heart, and I surrender. I surrender to King Jesus, and I want to labor by the power of the Holy Spirit to kill this sin in my life and to live because I live righteously, to, not to earn my favor with God. I can't do that. But because through Jesus, I am God's son or daughter, and I want to know and to love my great God and Savior. The worst thing we could do, leaving this auditorium this morning, any of us, is to remain unchanged. We all struggle with this. So if we just leave and say, well, you know, I feel guilty, but then you do nothing. Or if you just say, yeah, whatever, and you do nothing. Friends, that is scary business because it means we're the kind of people that earn Jesus' woe. So let us leave independence and faith on Jesus, dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to cleanse us and to walk, not as religious play actors, not in insincerity, but in the true sincerity and freedom of the Son, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Be warned about Jesus' severe judgment if you are a blind religious play actor. And don't just stay warned, but repent and trust and experience the forgiveness, the grace of King Jesus towards you. Let's pray. Jesus, you pronounce judgment. You are tender and tough. You are tender and tough. And Jesus, you have shown us your tough side in these woes. But even your toughness is towards the end of driving people, hopefully, toward repentance and faith so that they might enjoy you, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit in fellowship for all eternity in your kingdom that will come. Lord, do your work through this word. Do your work in each of our hearts and help us to live by it. Lord, we mourn for our nation Lord, we don't hate our nation. We just know that we hate what it does. And we want to see people saved out of it. Lord, give us boldness. 
and yet be the just God that you are. Visit the blood of your servants upon those who will not repent. That's what the saints under the altar long for, is to be avenged if the people would not repent. So we ask the same. We ask for grace to be faithful and winsome even as we go out this week to share the gospel. Be with our brothers and sisters across the globe who are being slaughtered. Hold them firm. Guard them from capitulating and compromising that your name might be lifted high. We ask that we would take this warning with us for ourselves and for others around us this week. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.